Rosita, if you would turn then to Ephesians in chapter 6. We come then to the preaching of God's Word there found in verse 19. This comes at the conclusion of Paul's exhorting of the Ephesians to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might, putting on the whole armor of God. And then you'll notice at verse 18 and reading through verse 20, Paul writes, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints and for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds. Therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Christians, universally of Christian indeed, are a praying people. It is, as many have noted, the breath of the soul. And so when one is quickened and made alive in Christ, they instantaneously and without exception become a people of prayer. doesn't mean that everyone prays as they ought to pray, as frequently and as deeply and as with much faith as they ought. For there are seasons of growth and seasons of declension. There are gifts and graces that are variously given by the Lord, and yet, without exception, every regenerate believer is brought to be a praying people. And this, of course, is likewise seen in the visible church as it gathers. Prayer is a key part of public worship. It's fundamental that we would call upon the Lord in giving Him thanks and praise and requesting according to His promises and our various desires and needs that He would provide. And advance His praise, forgive our sins, and build up His kingdom and bring glory to His name. And so wherever there is a Christian church, there is public prayer. It's true in Christian families. Even in those who have not yet come to see how clearly it is expected to have regular family worship, yet Christian families cannot help but on occasion at the least pray because it is instinctive. And not instinctive in a natural and carnal sort, but instinctive by a spiritual and gracious principle given by the spirit of grace and supplications which now inhabits them. And so this is one reason why Paul is exhorting the same. And notice how comprehensive he is in verse 18, praying always, so that as it were extends to all seasons, and with all prayer and supplication, with all types and parts of prayer, from petitions and supplications to thanksgiving and specific matters and general matters. And then he goes further, in the Spirit, so not the rote reading of prayers and the clever and beautifully and yet mechanistically developed forms of speech, but motivated by God's Word, enlivened by the Spirit, earnest communion taking place. And then notice, watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. You'll notice this emphasis of the word all and its related word always. Praying always with all prayer, with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. This one verse makes it irrefutably the case that if we're to be biblically faithful Christians, prayer must be a preeminent mark of our life. Not something that sort of starts the day for five minutes and then before a meal finds its position, but is something that is part of the breath of the Christian throughout the day. Of course, there will be those stated seasons of prayer individually and as family and at set times and so on. But if we're to take up just this one verse, we realize that this means the whole of our life is in one sense continuous prayer. And yet notice he then leads into the text before us this evening. And he says, and for me. So among all of your other prayers, remember to pray for me. This is the Apostle Paul. That utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the Gospel. So Christians, in all of their remembrance of all other things at all other times, 
they are specifically as well to remember specific ministers. And here, Paul, who is identified as that, notice he doesn't say in particular, you know, pray for me because I'm an apostle and I'm chief among the other officers. But he uses an expression that's true as well of all gospel ministers. Verse 20, for which I am an ambassador, one sent forth by an authoritative commission ordained to deliver the word of one superior to himself. This is true then of not only extraordinary officers like Paul as an apostle and then New Testament prophets and evangelists like Timothy, but it's true as well of all gospel ministers, pastors and teachers today that they stand in need of specific and earnest prayer. And you'll notice Paul, of course, was of all New Testament ministers, one most highly privileged as he, as born, though born out of season, as he says himself to be, yet was nonetheless an eyewitness of the resurrected, glorious Lord Jesus Christ and was privileged not only to labor, but to suffer for him and to be one who went about the known world, as it were, uh, laying the foundation of Christ that others might build thereon and bring forth glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet as gifted as he was, as gracious as by God's favor he was, yet he was sensitive to his personal need of the Lord's provision, which in the Lord's arrangement was brought to pass by specific and earnest prayer by the saints on his behalf. Now if this is true of none less than the Apostle Paul, it is most certainly true of every other gospel minister, that we are to pray for these things. But what are we to pray for? We'll open this more fully, but notice he says that utterance may be given unto me. Literally, that word, and it has a force to it. And so sometimes you hear men pray for unction. And unction is a word that means anointing, the Spirit's owning of the word going forth that it comes with such influence from above that men see the man disappear and as it were the unseen God appear. Not in any visual construal, but rather with a spiritual sensitivity of realizing that God is owning His Word. This is what Paul's praying for. And that I may open my mouth boldly. Paul would characterize himself on another occasion as coming in weakness and in fear and trembling. And so he comes saying, I need grace to open my mouth faithfully, boldly, confidently. But to what end? To make known the mystery of the Gospel. He wasn't interested in waxing eloquent about philosophical speculations, though doubtlessly he was gifted and able to do so. He was able to go toe-to-toe with the highest of philosophers of his day, those which stand above and beyond our own generation's learned men. And yet his great desire and felt need was for the Lord's help in making the Gospel clear and by the Lord's grace powerfully known. Well, this all leads us to see that Paul is appealing for the Lord's people to pray for the blessing upon the Gospel ministry. This is a frequent request of his, and we could spend all of our time just looking at different ways this comes out. But just to see this in a couple of different angles, notice Colossians in chapter 4. Of course, this is parallel uh, to this epistle. Ephesians and Colossians are uh, most likely written around the same time, if not at the same time. And so there is a similarity of expression and order And so it's no surprise that in Colossians 4 and verse 3, you'll notice that Paul says, with all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Now, that this is following the same order is easily displayed Because Ephesians, of course, you'll remember in chapter 5 into chapter 6, is a dealing of household issues. So, husbands, wives, husbands, fathers, children, masters, servants. And you can see that in Colossians chapter 3, the same order. 
And so verse 18 of that chapter, wives, then husbands, then children, then fathers, then servants, and so on. And then notice as well in verse 2 of Colossians 4, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. There's a general call to prayer. And then he's saying, but pray also for us, especially as we labor as ministers, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery, this time not of the word gospel, but its substance of the good news which is about Christ, that we might speak the mystery of Christ and make it manifest as I ought to speak. Well, similarly, notice in 2 Thessalonians and chapter 3, Paul in a different uh, season nonetheless calls for something similar. There at verse 1, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. And so all of these put together confirm the same fact that Paul is frequent in saying pray for the gospel ministry, but not just abstractly and generally, but specifically for us. In Ephesians, it's pray for me. Elsewhere, for us. And he's always writing with, of course, other ministers alongside him. So he's asking not only for some generic favor to the gospel ministry, but for the specific remembrance of specific ministers and their specific ministries. And brethren, we set this before us today as an appeal to pray, because what is Paul seeking but not some personal selfish favor, but rather as he realized and knew himself to be a minister set apart for the preaching of Christ to the conversion of sinners and the building up of the church and glorifying of the Lord, which was to engage in the preeminent means of that taking place, he was seeking ultimately both the glory of God and the good of souls. And so in doing this, he wasn't involved in some selfish venture, but was ultimately seeking the glory of God and the well-being of those to whom he ministered. So to help us consider then three things as we would consider this appeal to pray for ministers and the outpouring of the Lord's blessing upon their labor. Firstly, the minister's calling. Secondly, the minister's means. And thirdly, the minister's supply. His calling, his means, and his supply. We could, of course, be tempted to be discouraged to consider Paul's appeal regarding himself because he was once so gifted and highly privileged. And yet, we can also find tremendous encouragement because if he stood in need of these things, well, surely all such ministers today stand in need of the same. Well, firstly, then, to help us consider the minister's calling. What is it the minister is set apart to do. Well, we don't have a specific mention here. We'd have to appeal elsewhere for that. But you can see the essence of it when Paul is making this request. He says, pray for me that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Notice those words, to make known. This word, these words here, so translated, has to do with declaring and so it does have, it can have, and with the Apostle it doubtlessly did have a revelatory aspect. Remember, Paul as an Apostle was given supernatural gifts that are not given to ordinary ministers. When he wrote, he was writing Scripture. When he preached, he could preach, as it were, by God's grace, infallibly. And such was the particular gift to these Apostles and Prophets which stand as the foundation of the church, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2, Christ Jesus Himself being the chief cornerstone. And yet the word includes more than just that supernatural gift of uh, utterance that the apostles had. It has to do with declaring. And so the minister's calling is one engaged in a work of declaring. Now it's important to realize this. He's not asking for prayer that I might discover something I'm to make known, but rather that I may make it known. We'll get to in a moment the fact that he knows exactly what he needs to make known as he specifically mentions the mystery of the Gospel. But this action which 
in many ways characterizes the calling of every minister is the making known. And so you can see something of this if you turn to Paul's counsel and exhortation to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, preach the word as we're quite familiar with, but it's instructive how he um, expands that. He says in 2 Timothy 4 verse 2, preach the word, so declare it, announce it, herald it, but then notice he says, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine or teaching. And so to make it known includes all of these aspects. In order to make it known, there has to be the correction of error. In order to make it known, there has to be the calling out of uh, heresy as well as sinful practice. To make it known requires laborious instruction. And yet, in all of it, it is a faithful discharge of one who is, as he calls himself in the next verse, Ephesians 6, verse 20, an ambassador. So this is perhaps strange to us when we start to think about it. Because what Paul's saying is, I'm an ambassador. I've been given the message. I have been given the length and height and width, the depth of all that I'm to say, because I am one under the authority of my master. So I'm an ambassador. Elsewhere he says we're stewards, right? A similar concept. And yet he's still saying, I need grace And so pray for me that I might make it known. Why is that? Well, it's because it's much more than merely a theoretical and intellectual exercise. This is something important. Not everyone who has gifts of teaching is called to the ministry. Not everyone who can understand things is called to the uh, office of a minister. Public speaking, though, of course, an aspect of the ministry is not the qualification for it because the activity of the minister transcends all of the public speaking, all of the clear articulation and clear understanding. So we can sort of see this in today's world where they say, well, why is there such a concern about men only in the ministry? After all, women are smart, they're bright, Some of them are quite clear and able, articulate, and everything else, and we don't deny that. There are certainly women who have greater gifts than men and articulation and skill and everything else, but the fundamental error in that consideration is that that's to misunderstand the nature and calling of the ministry. It's not only that one be articulate, thoughtful, persuasive, clear. Those are certainly part of it, but the ministry is the work of God through a man to make known His Word. And so this is why we have to be those who are bound to what He provides us as the qualifications. Because a minister is an ambassador declaring a message that in one sense is not his own. It's not his message. It's the Lord's message. And if he's going to be faithfully discharging that, he has to be faithfully qualified for that. And if he has any hope of the gospel going forth and bringing about the desired end of converting sinners, he must have the Lord's help, not just to make it clear and understandable and all of those things, which of course is included, but that with his preaching, the Lord would, as he requests elsewhere, let it come with power as it has come unto others. So the action of making it known in one sense is an activity that the preacher himself doesn't have control over. So he can labor with the words and make sure he's not speaking above and beyond the people. He can be laboring to say, how can I make this plainer and clearer and understandable? Am I using language that they understand? Am I speaking to the people in front of me? All of that's right. But at the end of the day, when that is finished, it requires still the Lord's grace that the word preached would have the effect of being understood, discerned, and embraced by the people. This is why Paul in 1 Thessalonians praises God and acknowledges the election of the Thessalonians because when the gospel was preached, it didn't come in word only, he says, but in word and the Spirit. That's what Paul is praying for. That I would know the assistance, the divine blessing of the Spirit to make it known in that way. This transcends my natural ability. 
And so it teaches us to pray, Lord, yes, increase gifts and graces of every minister. But in the end, O Lord, he needs that which no gift, no grace resident in himself can accomplish. He needs the grace of God. Well, what is he to make known? Paul says he is to make known the mystery of the gospel. The word mystery, of course, is one that Paul employs on various occasions, but it has to do with that which was less known being made known. So children sometimes like to play games like 20 questions and other related things, and they have to ask questions, there's a thought in their mind, and then they love to play that game and figure out, and it becomes clearer and clearer until finally they have a guess. Well, the gospel is something similar. It's not exactly, of course, the same, but what happens in the Old Testament is there is a clear statement that there will be a descendant of the woman, Eve, who will come as the Redeemer. And it becomes clearer and clearer. And it's certainly clear enough that from the very beginning, people were able to believe upon what was revealed and rejoice in the salvation that the Lord would bring about. But it becomes clearer throughout the Old Testament. And so you have greater clarity at Abraham, as it will be one of his descendants according to the flesh. And likewise, it becomes even clearer with David, as it will be one of his descendants, and so on. All of these things are getting clear until finally, it's as if at the uh, Gospel account, what happens is God says, I'm just going to tell you with the utmost of clarity who this is and what He's going to do. And so we're able to read the Gospels. And instantly we have all the clarity of the Old Testament brought to uh, a great and high degree. We can see everything more fully because we see now all of these things are, as it were, focusing upon the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and how plainly He fulfills all of those things. And so this mystery is that which was revealed, that unaided reason cannot discern of itself. It needs the revelation of God's Word. And yet there's more. It's not just talking about, if we want to think of it this way, the matter of the revelation, the mystery of the subject, Jesus Christ, and what He's done. But the making known of this mystery likewise includes the receiving of it. And so this action to make it known is regarding the Gospel, both what it is, but also why it is men and women need this, and how it is they come to embrace it. And we start to see how important this is because there's both the difficulty of making plain the substance of it, the what of the Gospel, but there's also the difficulty of self-righteous sinners understanding what it is that they don't pervert and twist it. How many people have heard the Gospel and thought of the Gospel nothing more than self-help? And so here's what Jesus has come to do. He's come to make my life better. And see, that's not the Gospel. And Paul realizes that and he's saying, I need the Lord's help to make plain and clear what the Gospel is. Galatians is a great example of those who had embraced the Gospel, but very quickly had become tripped up by that which was not a Gospel. They had, as it were, received false teaching that turned the Gospel into a new law. And we see that even in various times throughout history, that the Gospel becomes a new way for man to gain righteousness of his own prayers and works and repentance and other such things. There's even the formal teaching that has been heretically asserted on occasion, which says, well, since no one can keep perfectly the Ten Commandments, the summary of the moral law, what God has done is He's given given something that replaces the moral law. And so if you just believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, God is willing to say your faith now of its activity meets the requirements of the moral law. So in other words, my faith becomes a work by which I am now justified. You can see the subtle difference there and yet an essential difference. Faith, of course, is needed. We must receive the Lord Jesus Christ, but faith is no part of our righteousness. It's not as if we say, I have faith, therefore God rewards my faith as righteousness. 
Faith, rather, receives Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the Gospel. Christ is our righteousness. And when you start to unpack all of these things, you realize how desperately needed it is that the Lord gives help to the minister and understanding to those to whom He's preaching. The Gospel is, of course, tremendously simple. That the youngest who has any degree of understanding is able to discern the truth and by God's grace flee and embrace it by the Lord's grace and to His glory. But it is not simplistic. And it is certainly not the case that men are natural understanders of the Gospel because they twist and pervert it into that which is no Gospel. So Paul's saying, here's the calling. The minister is to labor to make sure that the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is both declared faithfully and to a people who stand in need of having it clarified with great help. So the minister's calling to make known the Gospel. What is the minister's means? Secondly, the minister's means. Certainly we could include things and Paul's implying one with reference to prayer. But as far as the minister's calling himself, the means that he is given is proclamation. He is to be a proclaimer. He's to be a preacher. He's to be a minister and servant, a steward of the mysteries of the Gospel that he is making known. Of course, this will have different aspects to it. There will be the sense of um, private teaching, as Paul says of himself. Interestingly, speaking to the elders of the church of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, when he says, I was preaching publicly, teaching publicly, and from house to house. And so there are different, as it were, scenes for it. But fundamentally, the labor of the minister is to be marked out by proclamation. So you can see that when Paul says, what, what could he pray for? You know, you could think of all the things he could pray for and how if uh, some sort of modern so-called uh, pastor would say, what, am I, what do I need help for? You know, I need help managing this administrative team and this committee meeting and that, that sort of uh, new uh, uh, work and so on. He says, here's what I need help for. This is what I want you to isolate and focus your prayers upon. It's that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly. What's he getting at? That I would be able to proclaim the truth. Of course, this doesn't deny the need for wisdom. This doesn't deny the need to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. It doesn't deny the fact that he's to navigate difficult scenarios. But he's getting to this point of saying, at the end of all of that, there is the fundamental need that I preach faithfully. You see, this is actually a lens through which we can see many errors of our day. And so there are all sorts of churches who love to put on billboards these heartwarming scenes and lights and glowing things and, you know, come to us, we get you and we understand you and all these things. And you sort of tune in a little bit to what they're doing and you really realize it really isn't the proclamation of Christ. It's not. It is you know, this good feeling, perhaps even in some sense um, reaction against cold and broken homes and other things, and it's providing a culture of kindness without the needed proclamation of the Gospel which says, you must repent of your sins and believe the Gospel. This is the Gospel that must be preached. It must be proclaimed. And so whatever else is done, it is a failure of the Gospel ministry if the proclamation of Christ is not preeminent. If that's not preeminent, the ministry has failed. It doesn't matter how many people have come. It doesn't matter how many small groups are going on. It doesn't however many people feel now they've really arrived at community and help and kindness and all these things. If Christ is not the sum and substance of the message being proclaimed, then the ministry is failing. When Paul, we saw this already in 2 Timothy, addressed Timothy 
He said, here's your summary command. Preach the Word. In season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and so on. He's saying this is the fundamental and comprehensive summary means that you are to employ at all times, never to be relinquished, never to be lessened. You must, whatever else you are, Timothy, be a preacher who proclaims the Gospel. Some have read Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' work on preachers and preaching. And in his own era in the 1900s, he was criticizing this notion of fireside chat. Some of you will know the reference, of course. And the notion was that preachers were starting to get into this notion of, well, we don't need this confrontive ministry. We need fireside chats. You know, come on in and let's talk and, you know, let's make it easy and let's make it simple and let's be kind and generous. And Lloyd-Jones was on to it saying, this is not the ministry of the Gospel. Because the minister is of essence called to confront spiritual darkness. He's called to confront and reveal error, heresy, damnable things. He's called to labor to make known how subtle temptation can be and how necessary it is to embrace the crucified Jesus Christ. And he saw in his day what the fruit of, of course, we see in our day, that it became very popular and in one sense very successful and yet otherwise disastrous at this switch from proclamation unto conversation has in many ways denuded the cause of Christ. It has made it to lose its fundamental focus, which is Christ going. I mean, think how Christ's ministry begins. He's baptized, and what does He do? He goes preaching the kingdom of God. What does He do with His disciples? He goes and says, go and preach the Gospel. Preach the kingdom of God. Call them to repent and believe the Gospel. You must. He's everywhere. The Bible is summarizing the ministry in this way. It is a confronting of a proclamation of Jesus Christ against the world. Today, of course, people get all sorts of slogans and now they put them on their bodies with tattoos and they take things like from the early church fathers uh, contra mundum, right? Against the world. And they say, well, that's a rallying cry. But what's interesting is the early church fathers and the one in specific that was mentioning that had a particular focus of the church proclaiming the gospel against the world, preaching Christ against the world. And so it's not for this slogan and t-shirt and jewelry and tattoo. It was to be a summary statement of the cause of Christ at war against the world. But if you look at the church today, largely considered, you see proclamation set aside, conversation increased, and with it all of the hesitation of taking a stand for the cause of Jesus Christ. That I may open my mouth, notice the language, boldly. Certainly he needs prudence. He indeed lists, among other qualifications, that the minister of the Lord, the servant of the Lord, must be gentle. And yet, gentleness does not preclude boldness. Boldness is not contrary to gentleness. Our culture thinks that's the case. Our culture thinks to confront necessarily means you're not being gentle, you're not being kind, you're not being generous. And yet, Paul as well as Paul's Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, proclaimed the truth against the world. Notice the preeminence is implied in this passage because while in prison, the one thing he's saying, remember for me in prayer, is that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Think of that for a moment. When he's writing of everything else and he's giving all of this counsel and he comes to include a petition regarding himself, the fundamental focus of the whole request is be sure to pray that I preach rightly. Be sure to pray that I make known the Gospel faithfully. 
Be sure whatever else you think of me, whatever else you think my needs are, here I'm disclosing what my need is. That whatever it is, in bondage, at liberty, with rich people, with poor people, with Jew, with Gentile, doesn't matter that I may preach the Gospel of Christ, opening my mouth boldly to make it known as I ought to do. It is the preeminent focus of Paul. You saw the other examples from his other epistles. That I may make known the Gospel of Christ. That it may have free course as it had with you and so on. This is the preeminent means provided to the minister. Now, in Acts chapter 6, when the need for the deacons arises, the apostles say it's not fit for us, it's not appropriate for us to leave our calling to go and serve tables. But they include in their statement, it's not fitting for us to leave the ministry of the Word. We must give ourselves to the ministry of the Word and prayer. This is to be the sum and substance of our whole ministry. Whatever else we are, we're to be committed to the ministry of the Word and prayer. And you can see that in this passage. Paul is exhibiting the same. I must be a preacher. At the Reformation, both the first and second, there was, of course, the criticism of so-called ministers who never preached. A bishop who wasn't preaching, the Reformers said, is no bishop. Because any overseer, as the Bible teaches, must of necessity be one who preaches, laboring in the Word and doctrine. And so it is here. Of course, there will be different personalities and gifts, and there will be different focuses perhaps in subordinate ways. But if one is a minister of the Gospel, they will necessarily be preeminently a preacher of the Gospel. Notice thirdly, the minister's supply. Notice Paul doesn't say, you know, pray for me that I can attend a conference. He doesn't say, pray for me that I could read another book. Pray for me that I could have some time here and there. Those things are helpful in our day, and certainly Paul had opportunity to confer with brothers, and he had, you know, among other things he wrote for on one occasion was uh, bring the, the books, especially the parchments, right? The Scriptures. I need to be much in the Word because in order to preach, he must know and he must be developed. But his great desire is to be able to preach. And brethren, though there are books on this and there are instructions on this, the supply for this is fundamentally of the Lord's grace. And so, we can study the sermons of the New Testament and the Old Testament for that matter. We can study the ways in which Paul is saying, listen, this is what preaching includes, rebuke and reproof and instruction and all these other things. All of that's helpful. All of that's needed. But when one has come to the end of all of that and has studied the best of sermons and read regularly and listened to the best of sermons and uh, gained much by it, He is left still in full need of the Lord's particular blessing and grace. And so notice, what is he asking for? Well, to understand verse 19 fully, you have to go back into verse 18. When he says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints and for me. In other words, to connect it more clearly, when you see the and for me, you can replace what comes right before it to get the flow of thought. Paul's saying this, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for me that utterance may be given unto me. We're not saying in any way to set aside the praying for all saints, but the weight of verse 18 is upon verse 19. All of this praying, all of this supplication, all of this perseverance is to the end that you would likewise not only pray for all saints, but all of that as well for me and for the Gospel ministry that I may make known the Gospel as I'm supposed to and open my mouth boldly and so on. All of that. What's he getting at? He's saying the success of my faithful discharge of the commission given to me And certainly the success of anyone benefiting from this labor depends upon the Lord to whom we pray to give this blessing. It is the Lord who must open the door. It is the Lord who must add His blessing. 
fact, we saw something of this in 2 Thessalonians when we saw in chapter 3, Paul uh, stating something uh, similar, 2 Thessalonians in chapter 3, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of God, the Lord may have free course and be glorified as it is with you. And so the success to the gospel labor, the success to the preaching of the gospel, the success to the ministry of the Apostle Paul is dependent upon the Lord owning it and adding His blessing to the end that it be glorified. Again, 1 Thessalonians, Paul exhorts and encourages the people. He's praying and rejoicing that he knows they've been chosen of God. How so? Because he saw into the secret mysteries of the Lord? No, because they had come to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the Word was preached, it wasn't in Word only, but with the Spirit and in much power. And this is what Paul's getting at. The supply to the minister's success, for the minister's success, it rests with the Lord. The Lord must own and be gracious. Now, notice what this isn't saying. It isn't saying that the success of the ministry is bound up with the degree of giftedness. It's not saying that success with the, uh, the ministry is bound up with the uh, nature of which office one holds. Rather, success in the ministry from the highest office subordinate to Christ, the apostles, was bound up still with the Lord owning that by His grace to bring sinners to Himself. You know, we understand why we think this way sometimes, but we think, we read a sermon by Spurgeon, and we say, I wish there were a Spurgeon who would preach today. And indeed, we would be glad to see so many Spurgeons preach today. We read of Lloyd-Jones, and we wonder, and we say, Lord, that you would raise up similar men today, and there's propriety in that. But we have to be sure to understand this point. Spurgeon would be the first to say it. Lloyd-Jones said it explicitly. It had nothing to do with his level of education, nothing to do with his own giftedness and so on, any success they ever enjoyed was bound up solely with the Lord's gracious blessing. This is why McShane, who died by the age of 29, who saw revival break out and was a steward of much favor in the Lord and blessing, and is writing still today sermons that have been transcribed for us, bring us rich blessing, was able to say a holy minister is a fearful weapon in the hand of God. We're to crave grace before gifts. We're to crave the Lord's blessing before natural ability. This is what Paul's acknowledging. He had been privileged of the Lord in countless ways, and yet he realized, I mean, think of this, he's in prison right now as a sufferer for the Lord Jesus Christ. How did he get there? He preached faithfully, unyieldingly, unrelentingly the gospel of Christ without compromise. He's the one who stood up against Peter and said, listen, you're in error. You need to repent. You have misrepresented the gospel. Paul was faithful. He saw sinners of Jews and Gentiles converted. He helped plant churches and all of these things. And here he is as a testimony of his faithfulness in prison in Rome. And yet he's saying, I still need the Lord's grace. Without the Lord's grace, nothing will come to pass. The Lord spare us the day when any minister walk into this pulpit or any of our pulpits satisfied with his gifts and ability or his previous track record. As soon as that happens, we can be sure of one thing. No outpouring of blessing. The Gospel minister is to realize his supply rests with the Lord. Turn to Revelation chapter 3. You'll see this from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ Himself to the church of Philadelphia, the minister of the church of Philadelphia. They're called an angel. And He's identifying Himself, verse 7 of Revelation 3, These things saith He that is holy, He that is true, He that hath the key of David, He that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know Thy works. Behold, I have set before Thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength and hast kept my word and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet to know that I have loved thee and so on. What's the point? Christ isn't just saying, I'm going to give you a stage 
on which you can proclaim, but I'm going to open a door of efficacy that even your sworn enemies are going to come before you. That's the supply from the Lord. He holds the key of David, the key of the government of the church of Christ. It's advance, it's shutting down. What's being said? We stand in need of the King of Kings every time to open the door, not just for the opportunity to preach and for us to hear, but for the blessing upon the preaching when we hear. This is why with our families before coming to worship, we set us part time and say, Lord, bless the minister, bless the hearer, bless me, bless us. We need Your grace. Sometimes we may say, well, it's this minister today, or oh, it's that minister today. And when we've done that, we've betrayed a fault in our thoughts. Because the blessing does not rest with the man. The blessing rests with the Lord of that man. And so when it is we tempt and we feel ourselves thinking, well, I know I've heard that man before preach. Or, oh, I've heard this man preach before. We actually need to check ourselves and say, whoever it is, we need the Lord's special blessing. And all of this, as prayer is a means of grace in accordance to the Lord answering of prayer. Well, brethren, here is then a call for us to labor to see the importance of this great need that we would have the Lord's blessing. Without it, however gifted the man in front of us may be, however faithfully he discharges his office, however insightfully he presents and opens things, however clearly he illustrates and so on, apart from the Lord's blessing, it brings no blessing. And so, here Paul calls us to pray. We're thinking in terms of the installment of Reverend Craig to, or Reverend Scott tomorrow. And we think as well more broadly of various ministers with whom we're familiar. And what do we see? Well, in our culture today, there's this sense of, well, why is the preacher always in the front row? You know, why is he always the attentive one? Why is he the one that people look to? Shouldn't we have more cooperation and more participation? And so churches have gone the way of bringing up readers and those who share testimonies in worship and special parts of music, and they're all trying to include the people of God, but they fail to see the way the Lord includes the people of God. This is no little thing, though it's underestimated by our day. The Apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul, said, I need the Lord's blessing, which then demands that you do your part. You must pray. If you fail to pray, then I'm left as it were without the benefit of those added blessings. And then what is this? Well, think of the chain link, of course. Paul said in Romans 10, we saw this, how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they be sent? So we got that much. But how shall they preach effectively? How shall their word go forth graciously, powerfully, savingly, unto sanctification, unto the glory of God, except God bless it? And how has God ordained that blessing should come? Without hesitation, we say, through the prayers of His people. Someone says, wait, God is sovereign. You know, let me get into the whole maze of sovereignty and I don't know how it works out. And oh, you know, this is going to kill my prayers. We need to say, call that for what it is. It's unbelief. God who is sovereign has said, pray and I bless. And if we get ourselves knotted up, it's not the Bible's fault. It's not theology's fault. It's our unbelief. It's our sin. Either God is true. Either God is right. Either God is faithful and says, I have ordained that blessings come through prayer answered by My grace. Or He's not. You and I know full well that He is faithful. And though there is a mystery for us, how does it work? He doesn't explain all of that. But He does tell us, this is how I've ordained it. That blessings come through my answering of prayers. The blessing of the Gospel goes forth as I answer prayers. Now think for a moment, Christian, what's going on spiritually when you're tempted not to pray? And look back at your life where you have skipped prayer and realize what's going on. Satan is on the front end 
ensuring that there won't be success in preaching. You say, that's too strong. God can do what He wants to do. Of course He can. He made a donkey speak. But we don't make that the rule of our practice. We don't say, well, since God can make a donkey speak, we'll just bring a donkey up and we'll see what that has to say. God can do these things as He wants. But He has chosen to do these things as He's appointed. And so when it is that the Lord's people are suffocated before the throne of grace, we have no hesitation in saying this. There will be a stifling of the effect of preaching. And so when you feel face to face this war going on, see it as war. Because Satan knows that as you assault the throne room of heaven with earnest prayer, asking the Lord for grace, Lord bless my minister, Lord bless that minister, Lord bless this minister, bless these ministers. Satan knows that the Lord loves to answer those prayers. And if he can keep you from praying and busy you with all of the nonsense of the current distractions, that he will have greater success before the preaching of the Word. Make it a point of conscience because it's a point of obedience. I must pray always with all supplication for all saints and for the Gospel ministry. And brethren, here's the encouragement. As you do, and as a minister sees success in his ministry, the one who has sown, as it were, the seed of prayer will rejoice with the one who has sown the Word in preaching, rejoicing in the Lord of the harvest who has brought forth His purpose. And so the preacher and people will rejoice together that the Lord is bringing in His sheaves to His glory. Brethren, we rejoice in the Lord's faithfulness in providing us another pastor as, he, as we hope He will indeed fulfill tomorrow. This is not to the end of our praying, but it is to the beginning to pray for our brother that the Lord would so bless to the advance of His kingdom now and always. Would you stand with me for prayer?